The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 and 26 through 27. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of James. If you don't have one, there is one under the seat that you're sitting in. And uh, James is toward the end of the New Testament. You just heard um, a few of the texts that we're going to be spending time in this morning. And so I need to start with some basic sociological data to sort of get us uh, ready to hear what James has to say to us. And here's the simple fact that I want to remind you of this morning. You are rich. No matter who you are, you are rich. Rich. Here are the statistics, all right? Um, 85% of the people in the world live on less than $30 per day. Some of you guys have already spent that much on coffee this morning. Um, All right, so if you spend more than $30 a day on your basic needs, uh, you're richer than 85% of people in the world. If you make more than $2,138 per year, you're in the top half of global earners. Um, According to the U.S. government, 11% of U.S. households live below the poverty line. The poverty line this past year was $12,784 for an individual or around $26,000 for a family of four. And yet, even if you're in that bottom 11% in America, if you live below the poverty line here, you're still in the top 30% of global income distribution. If your household income is $65,000 or more, you are in the wealthiest 10% of the world's population. And by the way, the median household income in America last year was $65,000 or $67,521, which means the average American, if you're just average here, you're in the wealthiest 10% of the world's population. Uh, Finally, we in the United States have 4% of global population, and yet we hold 30% of global wealth, all right? I start with those stats just so you understand, doesn't matter who you are relative to anybody else in this room, doesn't matter how much you have or don't have, you are rich simply because you live in the United States of America. And I want to start with those stats because James has some things to say to the rich, and about the rich, not just this morning, but throughout this whole 
book. And, and when you hear James talking to the rich, I don't want you to be like, oh yeah, that's that other guy that I work with. All right. I want you to realize he's talking to you. doesn't matter again, who you are relative to anyone else in this room. Uh, you are the rich as we think about the scope of the world that we live in. But having said that, it's also true that within this room, there is a spectrum of income and means, right? One of you here is the richest person in this room. And one of you here is the poorest person in this room, as would be true in any room that we were in. There are real socioeconomic differences among us. And part of our challenge as we live life is that when we see another human being, we can't not see the social cues that they bring with them, right? Things like how you are dressed or how you are groomed or even what kind of car you drove up in or what neighborhood you live in or what you do for a job. We can't help but notice these things. And often to make judgments about one another based on what we see and what we perceive. But James wants to remind you that the gospel changes what you see when you look at another person. So before we get to the big idea of this text, I want to remind you of the gospel that lies underneath this text, the, the gospel truth that James is working out. If you want to think about a simple way to categorize the teachings of the Bible, you might think of it this way. Some texts and teachings in the Bible are preparation for the gospel. They're showing us the problem. They're helping us get used to the reality of what's gone wrong with the world so we understand why we need a solution. Then there's some texts in the Bible that speak to us about the gospel, that proclaim the gospel, and specifically the gospel of what God has done by his grace through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then there are some texts in the Bible that work out the implications of the gospel. What does this message mean? What does it do? How does it change us? What are, if this is true, what are the implications for life and for our lives and for the world? And most of the book of James is in this category. It's giving us implications of the gospel. Because the gospel is true, because God has acted in time and space and history through Jesus Christ, what does that mean then? for the world and for us. And so because the text this morning sort of works out the implications of the gospel, I want to start just by reminding you of the message of the gospel, the good news, the truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. And that good news sort of goes like this. If you want to summarize it in a storyline form, that good news is the good news that you and I are here because God created the world and everything in it, and he made it all good, and he made us in his image. So we as human beings bear the image of God and are made by God for the purpose of ruling with God and extending the kingdom of God in the world as his co-rulers and co-regents. He made us for a noble and glorious purpose. However, we have turned against God and tried to be our own gods and through our rebellion, plunge the world into sin and misery and ruin and chaos. And all the problems in the world and all the problems in our own lives are the result of our own turning from God and going our own way. And yet God, early on in the story, made a promise that he would act, that he would intervene to restore a broken world, to redeem the human beings who bore his image, and to put things right again. And he began that work by calling a specific person and a specific family of people, 
delivering them from bondage, giving them his law, and asking them to be his people and to live as a distinct and unique people who, in the way they lived and honored God, would display his glory and his beauty and his design for human beings. That people is the people of Israel. And we read their story all throughout the Old Testament of the Bible. And what we learn as we read that story and trace along its journey is this, that despite the goodness of God's law and his rules, despite the goodness of his deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt, despite all the good things that he had given them, they still failed to live up to God's design and they still failed to be the people that he meant them to be. They couldn't resolve the problem of the rebellion that got us all here in the first place. And so God promised, again, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, that he himself would intervene in some way by his grace. And that's exactly what he did in and through the person of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God himself stepped into human time and space and history. The God who created all of this himself entered into humanity, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human. Because he was fully God, he could actually deal with the problem of sin. Because he was fully human, he could stand in our place as our substitute and do the thing we had failed to do. And so he lived the life we could not live, a life of full obedience and flourishing as God has intended. He died the death we deserve to die, bearing the curse of God for the sin and brokenness of the world. Not only did he die in our place, bearing the curse that we deserved, but three days later he rose from the dead. And in his, in his resurrection, displayed his victory over death and over sin and all, over all the forces that are hostile to us and to our flourishing. And now in Jesus' resurrection, He's literally building a new humanity. You might think of it this way. Humanity starts over again with Jesus. We are invited into a new way of being human in and through Jesus Christ. When we are united with him by faith, his spirit comes to dwell in us and he invites us into a new story and a new people, the people who are redeemed and restored and being redeemed and restored to what God originally intended for us to be. That's the good news of the gospel, that you don't have to stay in the old humanity broken by sin and rebellion, but you can become part of the new humanity in and through union with Jesus Christ. So that's the news, that's the gospel, that's the message that lies at the heart of Christianity and at the heart of the scriptures. What James is going to do now is he's going to say, hey, because that is true, here are the implications of that for you, for me, for us as a people and for the world. And so here's the simple big idea that James is proclaiming to us this morning. The gospel gives us a new way of seeing and a new way of living. That's what James wants to say to you. The gospel gives us a new way of seeing and a new way of living. Because this gospel is true, it changes what we see, it changes how we live. So we're going to see this new way of seeing in verses 9 through 11, and this new way of living in verses 26 and 27. So first of all, let's explore how the gospel gives us a new way of seeing. Look at James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, so the world's way of seeing looks like this. Uh, Poverty is humiliation and wealth is exaltation. But James says the exact opposite. He says, if you are poor, you should boast in your exaltation. And if you're rich, you should boast in your humiliation. Why? Well, because the gospel gives us a new way of seeing. What is it that the gospel helps us to see? Well, first of all, the gospel helps us to see the transience of riches. Did you notice the metaphor that James uses in verse 11? For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich person fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you're familiar with your Bible, you might have noticed that James is borrowing some image imagery from Isaiah chapter 40. Here's what Isaiah 40 reads. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I've told you repeatedly, the New Testament apostles are just good readers of the Old Testament, and most of the images and metaphors and language they borrow is just the language of the Old Testament. And that's true here. James is just saying, hey, remember Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See, the gospel gives us the wisdom to realize that riches are transient. They they don't last. They can't guarantee our health or our longevity or even our happiness. The Bible doesn't say riches are bad. You shouldn't have any. But it also doesn't say riches are good. They solve all our problems. What the Bible says is riches are fleeting. They're transient. They're temporary. So you shouldn't put your hope hope in them. You shouldn't make too much of them. You shouldn't glory in them. You shouldn't trust in them to be your protection and your security. It's just not worth it. See, in the world's way of thinking, in a way of thinking that doesn't count the gospel as true, this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, then of course, you should make as much money as you can and spend it as fast as you can in order to be as comfortable as you can because this is all you get. So eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Right? That's the world's way of thinking. And the Apostle Paul sarcastically agrees with that very sentiment in 1 Corinthians. He says, if the gospel isn't true, then that's exactly how you should live. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What Paul's doing there is just quoting the the pagans, the Epicureans, who said, you know what? Best you can do is just enjoy now because this is all you get. And Paul's saying, yeah, if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus didn't get up out of the grave, then of course, that's exactly how you should live. But if the dead are raised, if Jesus really did get up out of the grave, if God and God's word and the souls of human beings 
are eternal, then who cares how many toys you can gather before you die? It just doesn't matter. It's just a dumb contest that you shouldn't care about. The gospel helps us to see the transience of riches, how fleeting they are, how unsatisfying they are, how temporary they are. The gospel also helps us to see the beauty of poverty. Think about this. When the God of the universe, the God who made everything that is, the God whose glory and beauty are seen every time you go to the beach or go to the mountains or look out at the stars at night, when the God who made all of that chose to enter into human time and space and history, he did not choose to be born into a wealthy family that had a lot of power and privilege and comfort. Instead, he chose to be born into a humble peasant family in a blue-collar town called Nazareth. Think about how low the God of glory condescended. He not only humbled himself to become human, which is a big step down from being God, but he humbled himself by becoming poor and powerless. Not just a human, but a relatively disadvantaged human, a relatively poor human, one who didn't have power and authority. And in fact, this is part of the glory of the gospel. It's part of what makes the gospel such a powerful message because it totally turns upside down the world's value system, right? Like if you had written the gospel message, wouldn't you have written Jesus in as like a person who just like kind of came in the world and could kind of call the shots because after all, he's God? But listen to what Mary says after the angel shows up and announces to her a, a humble peasant woman that she's going to bear a son, and she should call his name Jesus because in him, God's going to save his people from their sins. Here's how Mary responds in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 and following. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary realizes that by virtue of the fact that the angels have shown up to her and told her that she is going to bear the Savior of the world, that this very fact means that God's upending the world's way of doing things. God's honoring the poor and elevating them and humbling the rich and powerful. By coming to the poor and powerless, Jesus exalts those who are lowly in the eyes of the world. And so Paul, the apostle, can summarize the gospel in one verse this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul says, hey, if you want the gospel in one verse, here it is. Jesus was rich. He became poor so that you, because of his poverty, could become rich. The gospel helps us see the beauty of poverty. Our Lord Jesus Christ 
was poor. And so there's no way we can disdain the poor, the disadvantaged. Rather, the lower we go, the more we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why James tells us, let the lowly brother, the humble person, the person of meager circumstances, let that person boast in his exaltation. And let the rich boast in his humiliation. Because after all, what the gospel does is it turns the world's way of seeing things upside down. If you're poor, if you don't have much, if you're a person of average, ordinary, humble circumstances, you should rejoice in your exaltation. Because of Christ, you are highly honored. Christ became like you. You have much in common with him during his time on earth. And likewise, those of you who have much, who have been blessed by God with significant means, You should boast in your humiliation because it's all going to fade away. And so you have an opportunity to display in how you hold what you have and how you share what you have and how you use what you have. You have a unique opportunity to show the world a different way of relating to possessions and wealth and material goods. You have a chance to show how the gospel changes how we relate to what we have. And the issue here, by the way, is not simply means or lack of means. The issue in the scriptures is how our material goods tend to affect our spiritual posture. There are wicked poor people and there are virtuous rich people. The Bible knows that. But the reason it frequently speaks of the poor as those closer to the kingdom of God and the rich as those further from the kingdom of God is because of how our means connect to the state of our souls. The less we have, the more aware we are of our neediness and our dependence. And that tends to put our soul in a place of acknowledging neediness and dependence. The more we have the more we tend to operate from a place of abundance and self-sufficiency and self-reliance and the less we tend to be aware of our need because after all, I can just write a check for it. It's rare to meet a wealthy person who has a deep sense of their spiritual poverty and need, which is why James wants you to be very aware of how rich you are And to be very aware of how that tends to map onto the terrain of your soul. He wants you to realize, if you're rich, stay low. And if you are poor, know that the gospel raises you up. Because Jesus has identified with you in his poverty and humility. So the gospel gives us a new way of seeing. Helps us see the transience of riches and the beauty of poverty, and therefore the gospel helps us sit loose to our possessions, to our wealth, to what we have. A person who's gripped by the gospel loosens their grip on the things they have in this world and becomes a more generous person, a kinder person, a more humble person, and a more caring person. The gospel gives us a new way of seeing. But not only that, it also gives us a new way of living. And you're going to see this repeatedly in James. This is why James is such a wonderful book for those of us who tend to be very cerebral 
Because James is consistently going to say, look, there's some things you need to know and understand. There's some things you need to reckon as true. He just gave us one of those, right? Hey, look, the gospel turns wealth and poverty on its head. It changes the way we see these things. So that needs to factor into how you see what you have. But what we kind of want to do is go, all right, that was a cool Bible study. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to go home and think about that. James wants to say, no, no, no. Now you need to do something with it. Like you actually need to put feet to your faith. You need to do in light of this good news. And so he's not going to just convince us that the gospel gives us a new way of seeing. He also wants to understand, us to understand the gospel gives us a new way of living. And that's what's worked out in verses 26 and 27. Let's look at it together. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I want you to notice this. According to James, it is possible to think you are religious and yet to be deceived. It's possible to think you are religious and yet for your religion to be worthless. So we should care about that. Because you're sitting here in a church service this morning, right? This is a religious activity. This is something that people do because they believe there is something meaningful and true and ultimate in the world. So I imagine at some level you are here because you think you are religious. James wants you to apply the test and say, okay, realize, be cautious, be careful that you're not just thinking that you're religious and actually living out a religion that's worthless and meaningless. Well, what is it that makes my religious practice worthless? What makes it worthless, according to James, is that it doesn't bring about a new way of living. If your religion, your faith, doesn't bring about a new way of being in the world, then it's not a real faith. What did Jesus say? They will know you by your fruits, right? By your actions. James wants you to realize, look, don't be the person who thinks you're religious and it doesn't actually change the way you live. If religion is true, if the gospel is true, if your faith is real, if you're really trusting in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, it'll show in what you do. And notice the way of living he talks about. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. I'm going to do you a favor and skip that sermon this morning. And here's why. Because James is actually going to have a lot more to say about the tongue and about words and about speech as we go forward. So that sermon is coming and it is coming with a vengeance and it's going to be a straightforward Sunday. All right. Um, but notice James says, look, if your religion, if what you believe doesn't affect how you speak, then your religion is worthless. Like, stop, stop pretending. How do you know if your religion is genuine? Because it brings about a new way of living. And, and what is this new way of living then? Well, James mentions the tongue, but there are two other representative behaviors he brings forward to show this new way of living, all right? He summarizes this new way of living with two representative behaviors. One is positive and one is negative. One is more outward and one is more inward. Let's look at them. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit 
orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, this is a representative category in the Bible. If you know your Bible at all, you know that when the Bible speaks of orphans and widows, it is giving us a category that applies to everyone who is needy and vulnerable and poor and disadvantaged. So it's not like, hey, you know what? We only need to care about widows and orphans, not immigrants, and right, not, not other kinds of people who are in need, just widows and orphans. This is a representative category in Scripture that speaks of all who are what we would call powerless, disadvantaged in society. This ties back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, where God tells us this about the kind of God he is. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So you notice when God says, gives his people what they should do, the implications, he always goes back to deliverance, right? Hey, remember where you came from. Remember who you were when God called you out of slavery. And in light of that, then, do justice, show mercy to the sojourner. To summarize what James is saying here, he's basically saying this. The gospel way of living involves active mercy toward the needy and the vulnerable. Active mercy toward the needy and vulnerable. So, so let me just talk to you, Quarmdale Church, for a minute. Because I want to commend you in a few places. To all of you in this church family who have adopted children, thank you. To all of you in this church family who have provided foster care and respite care, thank you. To all of you who have walked alongside widows and single moms, and refugees who are being resettled. Thank you. To all of you who serve with new community, thank you. To all of you who check in regularly on elderly neighbors or gospel community members, thank you. To you who visit or write to incarcerated people, thank you. Our church has a history of doing these things. And you are to be commended for that because James says that's a manifestation of true Christianity. So let's excel still more. Let's do this more. Let's let this be reflected more in our actions in the world. Because though our church does much here, there's much more we can do. And I want you to notice, too, the particularity and the bodiliness of the exhortation that James gives, right? Religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Not to pay somebody else to visit them, right? But actually to show up. Like there's something about presence and relational connectedness here that matters, and so it's not just, hey, do we fund ministries that do this? This is about, does your life intersect with people who are in need and give you tangible, practical ways to come alongside them? Now, we have a simple opportunity to do this in about a week. We partner with this big event in the city called City Serve. 
And you've heard us talk about it. Ryan, whose picture was on the screen earlier, oversees not just connections, but mercy ministry in our church. And next week, a bunch of churches in Omaha band together to do a bunch of just mercy-focused ministry in the city. Now, here's what I will tell you. It's just a week, so it's time-bound, and it tends to be very service projecty, right? So there's a sense in which it's just an entry point. It does not fulfill everything James is talking about here, but here's what I know about me and probably about you. I need an entry point. So the right thing to do with something like city service is not to say, well, I mean, you know, it's not like taking care of widows and orphans and stuff, so that's cool that you're going to paint the park or, you know, clean up the neighborhood, but, I mean, you're stopping short of what James is saying. Yep, so let's start somewhere, right? Because the goal is that by doing something like this, that's just like, hey, sign up for a thing and go show up somewhere and help and serve. The goal is two things. One, that it begins to form us in certain ways, that these things become more normal for us. And two, that it becomes a conduit for the creation of the kinds of relational connections that can lead to more and more of what James is talking about, right? So let's not miss the opportunity we have next week to put feet to what James is talking about. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Active mercy toward the disadvantaged. But notice James gives us a second representative behavior. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this is a hard one for some of us to hear because we still live in the vestiges of fundamentalism. Many of you are trying to get over your fundamentalist hangover and verses like this don't help, right? So let me give you a little history lesson so you understand how things like this register in certain ways with certain people. In the 1920s, there was a split in American Protestant Christianity between liberals and fundamentalists. It affected every denomination that was Protestant and every church tradition that was Protestant. And here's basically the shape it took. The liberals, following German higher criticism, decided that we needed, if we were going to be good modern Christians who actually had relevance in the modern world, we needed to get rid of all the supernatural stuff in the Bible because that's embarrassing and, you know, pre-modern and superstitious. And so we can't be having Jesus raising people from the dead and doing miracles. None of that's real. And the resurrection itself isn't real. And so let's just get rid of all that stuff. And let's basically come down to what Jesus is saying is be a good person. So that's sort of where liberalism went in the 1920s. You had all these people saying, you know what? The basic message of Jesus is just love your fellow man. Well, the fundamentalists reacted against that because rightly it had some flaws, right? And so they sort of like, well, that's not true because if that's true, then the Apostles' Creed isn't true because we just professed that Christ rose from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand and is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. And if that's all true, then it's certainly not true that the resurrection didn't happen. So doctrinally, the fundamentalists had a right kind of reaction. But what they did was they doubled down on the idea of purity from the world. So if the liberals were all about compromise with the world, the fundamentalists were all about purity from the world in a way that was really weird. Can we just call it that? Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of good in fundamentalism. My, both of my grandparents were in the fundamentalist heritage, and I'm greatly thankful for what it gave me as a Christian, all right? So there is good in this tradition, but here's the bad. 
The fundamentalists developed a doctrine called secondary separation. And here's what that meant. Not only were you supposed to separate from the world, you were also supposed to separate from any Christians who didn't separate from the world. So not only should you not drink or smoke, you should not hang out with anyone who hangs out with anyone who drinks or smokes. Not only should you not watch rated R movies, you should not hang out with anyone who does that. Not only should you not dance, you shouldn't hang out with anyone who dances, which is why none of us can dance. <laughs> or even clap on cue, right? Man, we can't do any of that. It's all fundamentalism that did that to us. I'm still recovering. As you can imagine, what this created is a lot of legalism, a lot of self-righteousness, and a lot of behavior modification. A lot of Phariseeism where people cleaned the outside of the cup, but the inside was full of cursing and bitterness. And so fundamentalism needed to be and needs to be deconstructed. It was never a wise approach or a biblical approach to the world and culture in the first place. But as we always do, you guys know what we've done in this area. We've now overcorrected, right? So now we all drink and smoke and watch rated R movies just to make sure that we're not fundamentalists, right? Want to avoid being fundamentalists. So we need to hear the wisdom of James this morning. What he's telling us is true religion, religion that is pure and undefiled, means keeping oneself unstained from the world. In other words, there is a godly and a holy kind of distinction and separation. And it's not the kind of separation that says, don't associate with those bad people over there. It's the kind of separation that says, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that has implications for me. It means there are jokes I'm not going to laugh at. It means there are parties I'm not going to show up at. It means there are practices I'm not going to participate in or applaud. Not because I think I'm better than someone, but because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and my life belongs to him. That's the right kind of holiness, and that's what James is talking about. And he's saying, look, that's what true religion looks like. Don't pretend you have true religion if you're not willing to make those kind of distinctions. Now, what's really beautiful about what James is saying right here in verse 27 is that it holds together two things that American Christianity seems to always want to separate, doesn't it? I mean, liberals love the idea of caring for orphans and widows, right? They're not so keen on the idea of separating from the world in ways that we might need to be different. On the other hand, fundamentalists love the idea of keeping yourself unstained from the world. But as soon as you start talking about mercy, you are a social justice warrior and we must excommunicate you now, right? James says, you know what true religion looks like? Both held together by the gospel of the Savior who became poor so that we might become rich and who lived in the world, loving all the people in the world in a very distinct way where he never compromised his holiness and his distinctness. <laughs> James says, you know why that's what true religion looks like? Because that's what shows that you have God as your father. Did you catch that? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. See, if you're not confident 
that you have God as your father, then you're going to try to earn God's favor. Either through acts of justice and mercy or through the pursuit of personal purity. Friends, what makes both liberals and fundamentalists so brittle is that they're both trying to gain an identity. Their obedience is an obedience of anxiety, not an obedience of love. But see, when we know that we are given an identity by grace, that we've been brought into the Father's love through the gracious work of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we know that to be true and are secure in that, then we begin to rejoice in the fact that we belong to the Father. And we begin to take on his character. So we engage in mercy toward the vulnerable because it delights our Father. Because we know that's what God is like. And we avoid walking in the ways of the world because we realize we belong to a different people. We're part of a new humanity that Jesus is building. A humanity given to flourishing and freedom and joy and life. And that's a whole different kind of being. The gospel gives us a new way of seeing and it gives us a new way of living. So friends, let's join together and pray that God by his grace would pull us into this new way of living. Would you join me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that though you were rich, you became poor, so that through your poverty, we might become rich. Help us have your eyes to see the world around us. Help us sit loose to our wealth. Help us live lives of generosity. And then, Father, help us live in this new way in the world, in active mercy and justice toward the needy around us, and in the pursuit of personal and corporate holiness and distinction. Help us pursue these things. Help us live in these ways because they bring us the deepest joy and because they show the world, the goodness of our Father in heaven. So bring us more deeply into this gospel way of seeing and this gospel way of living for our good and for your glory. Amen.